1 Corinthians chapter 11. If you've got a church Bible, it can be found on page 1152. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, we're reading from verses 2 to 16. I praise you for remembering me in everything and for holding to the traditions just as I pass them on to you. But I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It's the same as having her head shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, she might as well have her hair cut off. But if it is a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, then she, then she should cover her head. A man ought not to cover his head since he's the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. For man did not come from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. It is for this reason that a woman ought to have authority over her own head, because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For... As woman came from man, so also man is born of woman, but everything comes from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not the very nature of things teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a disgrace to him, but that if a woman has long hair, it is her glory? For long hair is given to her as a covering. If anyone wants to be contentious about this, we have no other practice, nor do the churches of God. Do grab a Bible. Uh, 1 Corinthians 11 is our passage, and there's nothing like a good straightforward passage to get your teeth into when you've been away for a week. And this is nothing like a straightforward passage to get our teeth into, is it? Um, you may be a newcomer to Highfields, this is maybe your first time ever in a church building, maybe you're here visiting family or friends, a lovely weekend here in Cardiff, and if you didn't know otherwise, um, here at Highfields we are a Bible-believing, Bible-teaching church, uh, which means uh, that we don't uh, believe the things we do because of that's, that's what our culture tells us. Um, uh, to believe, you can find plenty of those kinds of churches out there, by the way, that basically do what their culture tells them to believe and do. But neither do we uh, do the things we do or believe the things we believe, because that's what uh, we've always done. We're not a kind of traditional church in that sense. And again, you can find plenty of churches like that. Uh, no, the reason we do what we do here at Highfords and believe what we believe is because we've uh, tried our best to go through what the Bible says and um, take its timeless truths and apply them into our uh, very specific local context. That's uh, at least the intent of what we're trying to do here at Highfields. Uh, as uh, John said, we, uh, as a church, believe in something called expository preaching, uh, which means that we, um, when we've landed on a, a book that we're going to study, uh, we work through that book chapter by chapter. We don't kind of um, just do the greatest hits of a book and leave out all the hard bits. Um, or we don't um, 
just uh, choose our favourite passages to preach on um, every week. And again, you find churches like that. Like, I suppose if I was choosing favourite passages to preach on, it'd probably be years and years and years before we uh, land in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 2 to 6. But in God's providence, this is the next passage in our series of studies that we're going through. And uh, I'm certain that the Holy Spirit has something for us all today from these ancient words. Uh, now, sometimes, just by way of introduction, a few introductory comments, uh, what we read in the Bible clashes with what our culture out there says. And uh, if you were here at Highfields in January and February, you will have seen that um, there's a load of places where 1 Corinthians clashes with what our culture says on the issue of sexuality and marriage and singleness and those kinds of issues. And if you um, want to catch up on that, you can uh, head to our YouTube channel or Spotify and download those talks. Really important messages um, to think about. There are other times, though, when we read the Bible, it seems to clash with what our own culture within the church, not the kind of wider culture, but even our practice inside the church. So if you've got your Bibles, look down to 1 Corinthians 11, verse 5. Let's dive into the kind of deep end. Every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonours her head. And what on earth is that all about? Um, Now, a few, again, introductory thoughts. I'd be very surprised if... Um, some of us in our church today didn't grow up or um, have been part of churches where people did indeed wear hats in Sunday gatherings. Uh, maybe even uh, would do so today, but I'm just looking out. I can't see any hats on, uh, on heads. Um, uh, but you know, if you've come from that kind of background, you may say, look, look why don't you uh, take uh, the Bible seriously? Why don't women you know, have hats on or head coverings when they come to church? Uh, maybe you have a Muslim friend uh, who has taken you to this very passage uh, when you're seeking to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. And they say, look, come on, why don't you Christian women wear the hijab like uh, we Muslim women do? Now, as a church, we want to respect the conscience of uh, Christian women who read 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and choose to wear a hat as a result of what they read. So I just wanted to kind of flag that up from the very outset. So maybe if you're home churches or different kind of traditions, you might go to places where that's exactly what they will do. And we we, uh, want to affirm that and say that's your Christian freedom. And we've been thinking a lot about Christian freedom in the study of 1 Corinthians chapters 8 to 10. But just looking around our congregation today, that is not clearly the majority opinion. And so are we not a Bible-believing church? None of us are obeying the Bible. What's that about? Well, let's not run ahead of ourselves, because say we had a different passage read out, and it was another one from Corinthians, but this time it's 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 12. So if you've got a Bible, you can put a hand in 1 Corinthians, flick over to 2 Corinthians, and uh, in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 12, it says, uh, greet one another with a holy kiss. That's in the Bible, okay? So uh, when the kids leave for their Sunday school classes, you thought it was awkward to turn to the person next to you to say hi. But imagine if I'd said turn to the person next to you and give them a good snog. That would have been really, really awkward for all of us. Um, and I guess we would have felt, please don't say that, Dave. <laughs> um, and we, we instinctively know that uh, greeting someone with a holy kiss was a cultural thing in the first century, as it is like in many places today, though I conveniently managed to dodge most of them when they were being distributed in Italy last week. Well, back in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, I am convinced that the very specific head covering instruction had a unique 
first century Middle Eastern cultural application, and so it doesn't directly apply to us today. Um, so, and now the fact is that in some parts of the world today, there will be a more direct application in non-Western uh, countries or churches. But here in, um, in uh, Western 21st century Cardiff, um, I don't think the specific instance of women wearing head coverings in uh, gathered worship is, is to kind of be seen as a kind of a, a binding norm for all women here in our church uh, service. However, what I also want to argue from our passage today is that uh, there is a wider principle that lies behind uh, the teaching about head coverings that does apply. And the wider principle, I put it below that, but actually it's kind of above it all. It's the principle that lies behind it all. And uh, the reason I say that is because Paul's rationale for teaching what he does about head coverings isn't rooted in first century Corinthian culture. His rationale is rooted in the doctrine of the Trinity and the doctrine of creation, which are timeless truths, binding principles that are much higher than the very specific instance of therefore wear a head covering. Um, Again, I'm running ahead of myself, but that seems to be the logic of what Paul is doing. Now, uh, just by way of a recap of where we have been in the last uh, few weeks, well, I guess since before Easter, we've been working through 1 Corinthians chapters 8, 9, and 10. So your Bible's open. You can kind of have a little reminder that the big summary week was two weeks ago. So if you've missed those studies, then dive into um, the sermon from two weeks ago. And uh, there uh, we studied 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 10, 23 to 11, verse 1. And we saw that Christians are free to glorify God by serving others as you imitate Jesus. And uh, the really kind of the key line is verse 31 to uh, verse um, 33. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews or Greeks or the church of God, even as I try to please everyone in every way. For I am not seeking my own good, but the good of many, so that they may be saved. In other words, Christian, you have freedom. When you come to Christ, he sets you free. But don't use your freedom for you. Use your freedom for other people that they may be saved. And in the context, it's to do with the kind of food you eat. So if you want to make friends with Muslims, you're not going to eat pork when you kind of share hospitality with them. If you want to reach your friend who's a vegan, you're not going to kind of dive into a meat dish. At that time, you're going to eat the food that they want to eat for the sake of them. You're free to eat what you like, but you're going to, no, I'm going to reach them, so I'll eat the food that they are happy with so that I can connect with them, be flexible where I can be, so that I can be firm where I must be on the gospel. And so it's all about living distinctly, living sacrificially, giving stuff up, for the sake of other people in the wider world. That seems to be what chapters 8, 9 and 10 are all about. Whereas in chapters 11, 12, 13 and 14, Paul switches gear. He's still urging believers to live sacrificially distinct lives for the sake of Jesus Christ. But here it's less for the sake of unbelievers, but for other believers inside the church body. That seems to be the the, the big principle. Lots about uh, the church body in these uh, chapters and God willing uh, as we've said in the autumn we're going to particularly study chapters 12 to 14 
and see how this cashes out in the area of spiritual gifts, which is a really important, often misunderstood um, area of uh, Christian teaching. And uh, we're going we're to get into that uh, later on in the year, Lord willing. Uh, but uh, uh, this week and next, we're just in chapter 11, uh, where we're seeing how this idea of being sacrificial and, um, and, and, and uh, servant-hearted in relation to how we think about gender and how we think about social statuses, uh, particularly in relation to the Lord's Supper next week. But we need, at the very outset, to acknowledge these are tricky passages. Let me uh, read you, this is a quotation from David Jackman. Uh, the Bible teacher, 1 Corinthians 11, he says the following, some passages are hard to understand and so engage the mind at full stretch as we try to work out their meaning. Other passages are hard to accept and so engage the will at full stretch as we try to respond to them in obedience. But this passage comes in both categories and it does, it stretches the mind and it stretches the will. So we need humility and we need to respond and say, Lord, please uh, show me how I can respond to what you're going to say. And I need to acknowledge right at the very outset that many Bible-believing Christians um, will read these verses and may disagree with uh, where I've landed and, uh, and how we might apply them. Um, though, I would argue that I think what Paul is saying is clear. Kind of underneath lots of the kind of cultural stuff, I think there is a clear message and it certainly lines up with the very clear message that we read in other parts of the Bible that are much clearer to understand, which is always a good principle. If you study a passage of the Bible which is really hard, often um, you can kind of shine light on it with other passages that are a bit clearer and easier. So that's a good principle. If ever you're doing a Bible reading, you get stuck there. Well, see if there's another passage that says the same point and shines light on your passage. Well, we don't have time to go into all the arguments in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. A couple of resources just to flag up. Um, I've, I think I've shared this before, but Vaughan Roberts has got a great summary of the whole of 1 Corinthians, true spirituality, and a good chapter on this passage, which you would uh, like to um, have a look at. And if you want to dig into this very uh, chapter, which is all about you know, kind of roles of men and women in, in marriage and in church, um, I think... One of the best books, if not the best book that I've read on the topic, is called God's Good Design, What the Bible Really Says About Men and Women by Claire Smith. And um, they're, they're, they're both well getting, worth getting hold of. Um, but I'm conscious it's an emotive topic, so I need to tread with humility. And so I'm going to stop and pray and ask God to lead our time. So let's bow our heads and pray. Gracious Father, we thank you for your word, and we know that all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for us, that we might be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And, and yet we recognise that sometimes some passages are easier, and some are harder, both to understand and apply. So give us humility as we seek to do both now, for the glory of your Son, our Saviour. Amen. Well, I've kind of waggled on the tee enough. Let's uh, dive in and see what I think is the summary of, of this passage in, in the context of the whole of the, the New Testament teaching on men and women, which is that God has created men and women equally, but with different roles in marriage in the church. I think that's seemingly what this passage is saying. It's contributing to that, and um, we're going to kind of see that cash out into, in some different places. That's, that's the aim, which is a bit less to do with head coverings, actually, and more to do with our wider Christian practice. But that's uh, where we're going. And there goes the bomb. It's just kind of blown up. Like, how on earth can you, oh, 21st century church, say something so old-fashioned and outdated, equally and differently? Well, I'm, what I'm going to try and do is, I really don't want this to be our church's opinion. I just want this to be, is this what the Bible is saying? If this is what the Bible is saying, then we need to hold on to it uh, with courage 
and conviction. And what we're going to do is we're going to break that down into two parts and uh, try and apply them as we go. So here's our first point. God has created men and women equally. And you need to be really clear, this isn't just the throat clearing bit before the hard stuff comes later on. This is really, really important. God has created men and women equally. The Bible makes it crystal clear from Genesis chapter 1 onwards. God has created men and women equally. Uh, so in chapter 1 verse 27 of, of, of Genesis. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God he created them. Male and female he created them. Men and women equally were created in God's image. That's the big thing. The image of God with his dignity with his honour, with his status, to reflect him to the world, to represent him to the world, to rule over the world under his rule. In uh, Genesis chapter um, uh, uh, 2, we get the, well, chapter 1, we get the kind of the big picture of creation. Chapter 2, we get the intimate uh, creation of humanity, and we get both uh, God handcrafting Adam in the first half of chapter 2 and handcrafting Eve, the second h- half of chapter 2. Um, the, in other words, we have to affirm that uh, men and women have equal status before God, equal dignity before God, which is you know, to say there should be absolutely no, no such thing as the, the kind of wicked practices that we see around the world, such as sex-selective abortions, you, you know, in many countries of the world which have no concern for, for females or female genital mutilation, just ghastly practices. You no, know, Christians should be like the first to lead on opposition to such uh, behaviour and, uh, and the sexism that goes with it. So equally created in God's image, equally saved by Jesus Christ. So here's a Galatians chapter uh, 3 verse uh, 28. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, there's neither male nor female, for you're all one in Christ Jesus. It's not that uh, men have kind of got a leg up in order to receive the kingdom. No, women and men equally accessible to uh, God for salvation and for grace. Uh, in the, the first century, there was a well-known prayer that, uh, that, uh, that young Jewish boys were taught to pray. God, I thank you that I was not born a slave or a woman. No, that's ridiculous. God loves men and women equally. It's true, Jesus did only choose male apostles, but women were equally vital in the progression of the gospel in the early church. I haven't got the references on the screen, but let me just fire some out to you if you're taking notes. Women were the first witnesses of the resurrection in John chapter 20, verse 1. It was a woman's home, uh, Mary, um, the mother of John, uh, that became the base for the earliest church plant in Acts chapter 12, verse 12. Uh, The first convert in Europe was Lydia in Acts chapter 16, verse 14. Romans uh, chapter 16, Paul lists seven different women he's laboured with, including Tryphena and Tryphosa, who he says, quote, work hard in the Lord. In verse 12. And even um, in the church in Corinth, which we've been studying way back in Acts chapter 18, when we read the planting of the church in Corinth, Priscilla, the female, as well as Aquila, her husband, are key workers in that church that work alongside Paul. Uh, we're told of Chloe's household, clearly a house group meeting in Chloe's house, etc., etc., etc. And even in the passage we're looking at this morning, there are hints of this equality point. Uh, Both men and women are equally dependent on each other. So look down in verse uh, 11. 
Verse 11 of our passage, 1 Corinthians 11, 11. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as a woman came from man, so also man is born of woman. But everything comes from God. Now, he's talking there about biology, but the principle is really, really clear. How symmetric are these verses? In the first century, you would not have expected symmetry. You'd have seen, you know, women are derivative of men, end of story. No, we're kind of mutually derivative, we're mutually necessary. Woman not independent of man, man not independent of woman, which isn't a comment about, you know, marriage or otherwise. It's simply the case that we all need each other to be a vibrant, growing community and church. In God's economy, we say no to the sexism that says men are better, women go away. Or that says women are better, men go away. They have no justification in the Bible. We need each other. In fact, both men and women in our passage can equally contribute in gathered worship. Really important here. Uh, We don't have the time to go into it in great detail, but in verse 5, which is our key verse, every woman who prays or prophesies. Women can pray and prophesy in the church. Now, we're not going to jump the gun on the autumn study, but... um, I think it's fairly clear that New Testament prophecy is a different category of thing from Old Testament prophecy. Old Testament prophecy, the prophet said, thus said the Lord. And if they got it wrong, they got stoned. In the New Testament, um, uh, elders are to weigh uh, the prophecy. And it seems to be a kind of non-authoritative sharing of what God is doing in someone's life. I guess a little bit like what Sarah Norton did a couple of weeks ago. If you were here on, a, on Sunday, Sarah Norton, who's serving God on the OM ship, she came and she shared what God has been doing in her life and the way God has been uh, blessing the work. Fantastic to see. And, um, and you know, women are entitled to do that in the gathering, as indeed they're entitled to pray. And it was great to, to have um, uh, men and women pray regularly in our churches. So, again, that's different from lots of traditional churches where women are seen and not heard. There's nothing for them to contribute. No, that's not what the Bible says. That's why here at Highfields we're very, very pro-women's ministry. We have six women on staff, uh, three of them permanent full-time staff, Elspeth, Jess and Joe, and three who are more shorter-term trainee roles, Shannon, Ruth and Martha, who's been working in the office. So point one, God has created men and women equally. That's a really important biblical principle, which is found even in our passage today. Point two, but with different roles in marriage and the church. Equal but different, complementary roles. We fit together, we need one another, but we don't do the same role. And here we're getting into the more controversial waters in the passage. Now, um, if you want to think a bit more about this topic more widely, I think four years ago, almost to the very day, 13th of May 2018, we had a panel discussion here on a Sunday evening entitled Equal But Different. And uh, Elspeth and myself and a couple of other folks were involved in a, a Q&A session on this passage and a whole load of other passages and it's well worth digging into we went on for a couple of hours and i think that would be helpful just to kind of uh, unfold what highfield's position is on these topics Uh, but let me read out from verse two uh, down to verse six i praise you for remembering me in everything and for holding the traditions just as i pass them on to you but i want you to realize that the head of every man is christ and the head of the woman is man and the head of christ is god Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonours his head. But every woman who prays with her head uncovered dishonours her head. It's the same as having her head shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, she might as well have her hair cut off. But if it's a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, then she should cover her head. 
Now, a few intro comments as we dive in um, to this passage. Uh, firstly, the words translated uh, man and woman could equally be translated man and wife. And uh, I think that's a better translation, actually. So it, it feels to be much more primarily about how married men and married women are to conduct themselves. Now, that's not to say there are no principles to unmarried uh, people, but that seems to be the first line of application. And the reason I say that is because there's been extensive research uh, that has been done um, outside the Bible. So we've got to kind of weigh it slightly, but I think it's been quite compellingly made to say that in the first century head coverings um, like in many Middle Eastern countries today married women uh, wore um, a a shawl over their heads to indicate that they were married and uh, they were kind of in relationship with a a husband and uh, and that was the deal they they had the shawl over their heads a little bit like uh, if you trained as a nurse many, many years ago, perhaps, and the, the different kind of head uh, wear that you wore indicated your level of seniority. So you, a trainee nurse has a certain kind of hat, and a registered general nurse has a different kind of hat, and a sister has a different kind of hat. What you wore on your head said something about your authority. Well, in, in uh, ancient times, the first century, in a marriage ceremony, the engaged woman would come um, into the, the, the ceremony uh, with a shawl over her shoulders, and at the point where um, it would be, I now declare you husband and wife, she pulls the shawl up over her head, indicating she's married. So having a shawl over your head said, I'm married, I belong to someone else. And so if you were a married person who prayed or prophesied with the shawl down around your shoulders, that is a great dishonour to your husband. Because it's saying you're still up for grabs, you're still on the lookout for someone maybe. Um, it was what the, the temple prostitutes were doing. They had, their, they had no sense of head covering. They just wanted to kind of show themselves everyone. It's kind of dressing up like you're one of those. Now, that's the first century cultural norm, and, and, uh, and it's important to be clear on it. But why does Paul insist that, that women take up on this first century norm? I mean, he's happy to be distant from the culture where he chooses to be, but why does he kind of double down here that they should kind of wear the shawl in a gathered uh, context. And I think the answer comes down to that word head. So uh, look down in verse 3. I want you to realise that the head of every man is Christ, the head of the woman is man, the head of Christ is God. Now actually, as I said, um, the word woman can be translated, in fact man and woman can be translated husband and wife, and so I prefer the ESV, I think I'll put it up on the screen. I want you to realise that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, the head of Christ is God. It does seem to be more about kind of you know, how married and unmarried men and women are to relate and kind of project themselves in wider society. Um, and uh, there were kind of a number of illustrations, a number of kind of examples of headship being talked about here. So you have um, you know, the relationship between the husband and the wife, and uh, then you have a relationship between a man and Christ, and then you have the relationship between Christ and God, and he's saying it's a headship relationship in each case. Now, it's that language of head that is so key, and some people um, have contested quite significantly. You know, on first reading, it seems to be about authority. The word for head is you know, the kind of word that you use to describe the head of a school, who has the authority over a school, the headmaster or headmistress, or the head of a department has that kind of authority. Others, uh, though, would say um, head is less about authority and more about source. So... Um, like we in our English versions or you know, English language would talk about the head of a river is the source of a river. 
Um, it's, it's not to be understood with any kind of authoritative dimension. You know, downstream is no less authoritative than upstream, uh, where the source of the river begins. Now, um, people much cleverer than I have, have studied this, and I think I'm fairly convinced that, uh, yes, head does have a source dimension to it. Um, in chapter 12, we're told that uh, Christ is the head and the body is nourished by that, which is what a source would do for the rest of the, the, the body. But I think it's unmistakably authoritative too. And um, let's just take a couple of the examples that, that we've got uh, here from, uh, uh, that are on the passage. So uh, we've got the example of Christ and a man in terms of discipleship and the relationship between the Father and the Son. Let's just kind of pick this off. If you've got a Bible, why don't you flick over to Ephesians because that, that illustrates it really well. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 22. God placed all things under his, that's Christ's feet, and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the forms of him who fills everything in every way. Clearly, Christ is the head of the church. Or we could um, look at Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15, in relation to our relationship to Christ. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head. We're growing up to him who who's leading us, who's providing for us, so he has a source dimension, but he's our authority. Or chapter 5, verse 23, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the saviour. So evidently, the Lord Jesus Christ is our head, he is our authority over us. So that's one analogy of what he's expecting husbands and wives to relate as. Ditto in the relationship between the father and the son. How are we to understand the relationship between Jesus and his father? Well, they're unmistakably equal, absolutely equal in honour, equal in dignity, in worth, in, in majesty, in, in, in worship, sure. But they have distinct roles. If you can't uh, stomach it, you've got to just study the, the, the text of the Bible as, as well. So famously, in uh, Mark chapter 14, you just take notes if you want to, in Mark 14, in the Garden of Gethsemane, do you remember when Jesus is there in the Garden, in his incarnation? He, Father, if there's any way possible, take this cup from me, yet not my will but yours be done. He submits to his Father's authority. But indeed, in eternity past, he submitted, so here's John 17, 24. Father, I want you, those you've given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you love me before the creation of the world. There's a, a relationship before the beginning of time. Father, son, authority. Equality, yes, but difference. And again, into eternity in the future. This is uh, one, uh, sorry, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 24. Then the end will come. When he hands over the kingdom, Jesus hands the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. For he has put everything under his feet. Now it says he has put everything under him. It is clear that it doesn't include Christ himself. Who put everything under Christ? So God the Father has put things under Christ. But God is the Father is clearly the authority over Christ. God the Father is head over Christ, authority in the incarnation, eternity past, eternity future. Why am I making that point? Well, I'm making that point because that's what Paul is making in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 11. And he's arguing just as it is in discipleship, just as it is with God, so there needs to be a equality, yes, and a difference, a sense of authority from a husband over a wife. Uh, and then he uh, makes a similar kind of point, but from the doctrine of creation. We don't have time to look at that. That's in verses 6 to 9. Um, 
And uh, if you want to follow up on any of these things, please drop me an email or have a little chat afterwards. Uh, verse 10, he goes really tricky and talks about the angels. This is in 1 Corinthians 11. Uh, because of the angels, which I think is simply to do with the fact that even as we gather here on earth, there is a sense in which the heavenly beings are witnesses to what we do. So we need to get what we do right. And then he concludes in verse 16. If anyone wants to be contentious about this, we have no other practice, nor do the churches of God. In other words, you know, the kind of teaching that he's encouraging the churches to, to go with is what they're doing everywhere else. You know, women are demonstrating their submission to their husbands in wearing a shawl in the services, and uh, unmarried ones are keeping it down. So what have we seen? Well, we have seen that husbands are to lovingly lead their wives, sacrificially, yes, Remember, it was the Lord Jesus Christ who sacrificially gives his life for his bride, the church. And wives are to lovingly submit, responding to the loving lead of their husbands. Now, that's important for those of us who are married. I guess many of you are married here today. Are you living this out? Husbands lovingly leading, wives lovingly, willingly submitting. Doesn't mean the husband always gets his way or sits on the sofa growing fat, ordering commands, more crisp, please, love. No way. It means being first to serve and to give up for his wife, just as the Lord Jesus did. It's important for those of us who are thinking about marriage, on the outside looking in. This is the kind of marriage relationship that the Lord is asking of you. It's important for those of us who are seeking to support marriages on the outside. Again, if you're single here, unmarried, there are many married brothers and sisters around you who need your support and help as we seek to live these God-given roles of equality and difference together. And that is why in the first century in Corinth, it was right for women to wear head coverings because to not do so showed a rejection of the biblical principle of male headship in marriage. And not wearing it was a way of saying, I'm rejecting my, fa- my, my husband's loving rule and, and his loving care. But we said at the start, didn't we, that cultures change and uh, some things are not the same. And head coverings don't do the same thing for us in 21st century Cardiff. Uh, we do communicate different things in our clothing even today. So uh, in Asia, women are often seen wearing long flowing trousers, uh, as um, many women here today will be wearing trousers in Sudan. And so you say, well, is there a particular clothing type that works in our context? Well, I don't think there is, quite frankly. I don't think there's any way that a woman can demonstrate, if you're a married woman here today, how do you demonstrate with your clothing that you are lovingly submitting to your husband? I just don't think you can. There's no particular artifact that you can put on that says that. You know, I was thinking, is there a principle, is the wedding ring a bit like that? Well, the thing is, both husbands and wives usually wear a ring. So that doesn't say, I'm submitting to my husband and he's lovingly ruling. You know, that, that's not the, the deal. I suppose the closest we might get is uh, the, the, the practice that we have um, um, in the West of when a, a, a couple get married, that the, the wife takes the husband's surname. That is a kind of public external thing that's saying, things are changing now that I'm getting married. Or I choose to be called Mrs. rather than Ms. Now, it may be that there are professional reasons or other practical reasons why you don't do that or haven't done that. But that would be one way of being able to say, look, I don't want to allow my culture to decide this. I want to demonstrate that I'm still seeking to live my life that God has given me for Christ. Well, there's much, much more that we could say. But the principle that I think that Paul has been teaching us is that God has created men and women equally, yes, fantastically, gloriously, 
but with different roles that will cash out in marriage in a certain kind of way and even in churches in certain ways. So I wonder what that looks like for you in your context. There'll be ways I imagine it speaks very, very clearly. Decisions that you're making about how your relationship is going. Decisions that you're making about whether or not to pursue a relationship. Maybe in the way you're seeking to support others in your life group, in your 20s group, who you know are in relationships and are struggling with this immensely. Whatever it may be, may God guide us as we seek to live for him, following Paul's example as he follows the example of Christ, not doing things for our sake, but for the sake of the body, the Lord Jesus Christ's bride. He loves his bride so much that he died for her, for us. We need to think hard about how we would sacrifice ourselves for the sake of others too. So let's bow our heads and pray. Gracious Father, we thank you for your word. We realise these are challenging words today. And whatever has not been of you, we do pray we fall to the ground and die. But what has been of you, we pray please help us to learn and digest and apply into our context. Lord, I particularly want to pray for, for, for marriages here today. We spend a long time back in, in the spring thinking about this. But again, we realise marriage is under great pressure. We do pray you'd help husbands to lovingly lead their wives and homes sacrificially, just as Christ has done for us. And we pray for wives. Please help them to lovingly submit to their husbands' leadership. Do pray that you would protect marriages. We know so often marriages fail and fall. Husbands abusing, overplaying their hand. Or abrogating and keeping back, turning away from the responsibility that you have given them. We pray for more grace in each of our lives. And for those of us who look on in, as, as single friends, we pray please help us to support the married folks that we have around us. To love them, to care for them as we all submit to the Lord Jesus. And we pray in his name. Amen.